or in your Bible, we're after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. We are in the book of 1 Thessalonians. We have been so far this year, and we're continuing our sermon series in it today. We're concluding the second of three main parts to this letter in verses 6 through 13 of chapter 3. So first let's read it, and then let's spend some time listening to it. This is the word of the Lord. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported to us that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we most pray most earnestly day and night that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Verse 11, now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for everyone, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are first of all grateful to be able to rest in you. We are grateful to belong to you in Christ. We are grateful that Jesus, that you though being in the very nature of God, did not consider that something to be used for yourself. But you emptied yourself and took on the form of a man and humbled yourself to a cross kind of death to save us. Now we want to increase and abound in the same kind of love you've shown us that this text is teaching us about this morning. We pray that you would help us to do so Give us the will and the strength to work out our salvation as Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So think about and bring to mind one thing that answers this question. From everything that you know, from all of your media sources, wherever you get your information, whether it's from the internet or the printed news or the radio or word of mouth, from everything you know about what's going on in the world, what's the most important thing going on in the world right now? Right now. What's the most important thing going on in the world right now? And you might think that this is some trick question, right? It's not. Nor is it an excuse to mention Lord of the Rings somehow, right? It's not that either. I'm going to Star Wars. No, I'm just kidding. It's not that either. It's not a trick question. It's a genuine question. It's a focusing question. What is the most important thing going on in the world right now? I'm pretty sure that in ordinary everyday life, you probably have the same problem that I do in gospel ministry. I want to be a disciple. I want to make disciples. But as I do so, I am perpetually distracted by something else. This is the newest, important, most biggest thing today. Oh, now there's this new thing in this news cycle. Well, now I need to be on board with this. Well, now there's this new... It's perpetual distraction. I want to... 
be a disciple and make a disciple, but there's always some next big thing I could do or some next big person I ought to be following. There's always something else going on that really needs my attention right now, right? My time and my talents and my treasure, they really need to be in this. So how do I wrestle into submission all my desires for those things, whether it's something new or something next or something shiny, right, or something that makes me feel like I'm doing something important? How do I wrestle all that into submission? How do I train my own short attention span, right, which is a lot like the dog in the movie Up. You remember him? Squirrel! And he's always looking off sideways instead of paying attention to what is in front of him. What is the most important thing going on in the world right now? It would help us to be able to answer that question. And the most important thing going on in the world right now is probably not being covered on CNN. It's not going to show up in the normal news cycle. But the good news is the answer to that question never changes, and it will be the same tomorrow as it is today. The most important thing going on in the world right now is Jesus Christ is building his church and getting her ready for him to come get her. That's the most important thing going on in the world. The Holy Spirit is using the word and prayer and the sacraments to get Jesus' bride ready for him. The Father is working out the glory program that he set in place before the creation of the world to redeem a people for himself that they may live with him and may worship him and enjoy him forever. The most important thing going on in the world right now is the focal point of all of human history, that God is calling people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language to be his own and belong to him. Christ is building his people, his body, his church, his bride. In the ordinary, everyday vocation of being Jesus' disciples and then making Jesus' disciples is how God goes about the most important thing that's going on in the world right now. He's going about building his church by the work of his people. That's what the book of 1 Thessalonians is about. That's what it's teaching us. It's teaching us how to be disciples, to be built up as his church, and how to make disciples, how to participate in his work of building up his church. And it begins, if you remember, in chapter 1 with celebration. We give thanks to God always for all of you because of what he's doing. And it, gives, it teaches us that discipleship is imitation. For you became imitators of us and of the Lord Jesus, and this is how this work goes forward. That's chapter 1, verse 2, through chapter 2, verse 16, focusing on character and conduct. And then how it moves, the book moves into the second section of the book of chapter 217 through the end of our text today that's about the care that is involved in discipleship and Jesus building his church. Character, conduct, and now care. And Pastor Luke covered for us the first two sections of this chunk of the letter last week. And Paul knows discipleship isn't easy, if you remember Pastor Luke's sermon. Satan's going to oppose the church. Satan's going to keep the church from growing and maturing. Satan's going to bring suffering and isolation to discourage and hinder the church. And Paul is really concerned for these believers, right? He's not a church planter who just likes to start something and move on to the next thing. He still cares for the people that he's been working with and wants to know that they're continuing. He doesn't want his work to be found to be useless or in vain. He's worried about their faith. He's worried that something is causing or distracting them from growing and maturing. And notice that his desires for the church imitate the desires Jesus has for the church, right? Jesus is also concerned that his bride become holy and ready for him to come get her. There's more imitating going on as Paul is imitating Jesus. 
But Paul can't be everywhere at once, can he? He doesn't have an infinity stone that lets him jump from this spot to this spot to this spot to this spot. So he can just kind of be every, or a time stone, right, that lets him go backwards in time and then be at a different church. He's just one guy and he's just in one spot. So how can one man who has other missional duties and is busy in other places planting and training other churches continue to combat the suffering and the solitude that Satan will use to stunt and stymie the church's growth? Well, he trains a cadre of people to work with him. He trains men like Timothy to be ordinary gospel ministers. He trains and equips them and they're called and they're ordained and then they're sent to minister in the everyday life of the church. He doesn't have to do it himself. He trains other men to work with him in the care of the church. So he takes care of the Thessalonians by training and sending Timothy. It's the same ministry we see Jesus do. When he trains his disciples, right? He calls them to be with him, and then he sends them out to do ministry. Paul's doing exactly the same thing. The way he takes care of the church is the same way Jesus takes care of his body. That's why for Paul, what we write here is true. What he writes here today is true. That life itself, life itself is the joyful preaching and the prayer that encourages and matures Jesus' church in faith, and in love for each other, and in love for the lost. That's basically what he's doing this morning. That's what he wants us to see. There are two parts in what he writes this morning, so we're going to take it in two parts. We're going to get to see what the apostle loves in verses 6 through 10, that we might be shown and shaped what we love, and shaped in what we love and what we believe. And then we're going to hear what he prays. He prays a prayer that kind of closes this chunk of the book in verses 11 and 12 and 13. And listening to what the Apostle prays gives us pretty clear insight into what the Apostle loves and believes, and he intends that to shape what we care about and what we do as well. So let's look at both of these. Let's see what the Apostle loves and hear what the Apostle, hear what the apostle prays. So we're going to begin in the first chunk in verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> Sorry about my throat. I'm going to keep clearing it, and I hope that doesn't distract you. Verses 6 and 7 of our text say this, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, and his sentence keeps going, but we're going to stop there for just a second. Paul cares deeply deeply that the Thessalonian church continues to love and learn and live out Jesus. So deeply, he makes a really unusual move in the grammar in verse 6. Look back down at verse 6. You may not have seen it, but it's there. You might, And if you know a little bit of New Testament Greek, right, maybe if you know just enough to be dangerous, right, with New Testament Greek, you might know the word euangelio. We get the English word evangelism from it to evangelize, to share, literally, to share the good news. When Paul uses that verb, he always uses it in the context of the way we usually use the word evangelism, sharing the good news about Jesus Christ, that you can be saved by grace through faith in him, that you can be reconciled to God and to each other. That's what euangelio always means in Paul every time he uses it, except here. And he uses it here when he's talking about Timothy's report from the church. 
Look at verse 6 again. Now Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news. He has evangelized us about you. And what he's saying is not that Timothy, the Thessalonians told Timothy to go share the gospel with Paul. You know that Paul guy? I'm not so sure about him. You better go share the gospel with him again. That's not what it means. It means he's using the word to highlight and emphasize for the person reading the text just how important Timothy's report is to him. Timothy's report about the state of the church is as the gospel itself to Paul. That's how deeply he cares about the welfare and the maturity and the flourishing of the church. Hearing the good news about you and Christ, it's as good as hearing the good news about Jesus. Notice how deeply he cares for them. And consider how he is imitating his Savior's passionate, ferocious love for his church. Right, John 15. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life. For another. That's the love of Christ for his people. This is the love of Paul for the church. So let's notice now the specific content of the good news that Timothy brings to Paul. There are three things he brings in the content. The first two of them are words we've heard before in the book faith and love. We hear of your faith. And your love, that should sound familiar. Those have come up a couple of other times. They start the book in the Thanksgiving. We give thanks for your work prompted by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. So faith and love. And Paul intends that these aren't just sort of broad, nebulous concepts when he uses them. He intends that they're carrying cargo from the way he's used them before. Remember chapter 1. How does Timothy know that the church is holding on to their faith in Jesus Christ? It's because they have works produced by faith. He can see the fact that they're not giving up. And how does he know about their love? It's because they have, chapter 1, labors prompted by love. He knows that they're sweating and toiling in love for one another and for the lost. He can see it. There is tangible, actual, physical, seeable, perceivable evidence that they are Christians. They don't just profess with their lips. They do it with their hands and their feet in everyday life. That's kind of important. It's going to come up again in this book. Those are the first two things. Timothy has seen their faith, and he has seen their love. The third thing that he comes back and reports is that the church itself longs to see Paul. They long to see Paul. And Paul is not including this. So that we, the readers, get to think, oh, that Paul, he's cool. Look at that. The whole church wants him to show up. They have a little Paul party, right? Self-actualization. Here we go. I want that same kind of authentic experience. Who do I have to manipulate to get people to like me that much? That is not why this is in that text. Right? We can't read this through the lens of our own therapeutic culture. The point is this. The mutual love that Paul and the Thessalonians have for one another in Christ shows what a healthy church looks like as it's imitating Jesus Christ and the people who have trained it. 
A healthy church loves its missionaries. A healthy church loves each other. A healthy church loves the people who have trained it in discipleship. A healthy church longs for, let's have more of the same. Let's have Paul back. I want to know more about how the Old Testament tells me about the Savior. Let's have Paul back. I want to know more about how to live life in this mess that is the city of Thessalonica. There's an imitating theme going on again here. Healthy church loves her Savior, reciprocates his ferocious love for her with love for others, with love for missionaries, with love for the lost. This is what a healthy church looks like. And that's why Paul is saying, I'm so glad to hear that you long for me. Because that's biblical. It shows that the love of Christ is permeating the pores of your being. And in fact, in Timothy's good news report about the ongoing work of the gospel at Thessalonica, we are actually reading what I would call something of a church health assessment. It's kind of a church health assessment. And as we're getting instruction from Paul about what he loves and believes and what they love and believe, we can also listen to what we love and believe and allow ourselves to be shaped by this text. How can we assess our own church health based on the good news that Timothy brings to Paul. So let's look at faith and love and longing for one another. Faith. As at first as in 1 Thessalonians, a healthy church, it seems to me, holds steadfastly to faith in Jesus Christ and steadfastly to the word of God upon which our faith is founded. That's themes earlier in the book. A healthy church does not forsake her Savior in times of suffering or times of isolation. So I'm going to use vine project metaphors for you if I can. We talk about trellis and vine. We've talked about this before in some of our meetings about the vine project at congregational meetings. Trellis is the ministry structure that supports what we do, and vine are the people who are growing up in the Lord, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. It's a slight variation of that. But the vine has to grow on the trellis, and you need both of them, a structure and the people. So if we look at our trellis ministry structure here at Grace Covenant, how does it build or promote faith? Is our, coven, is our ministry structure here at Grace Covenant founded on the Word of God so that we find that the Word of God is the bedrock and the foundation of every one of our ministry activities? and that in whatever it is we're doing in all of these announcements in the bulletin, the common theme is the Bible is being taught and preached and heard and lived. Is that going on here? What about our vine? Would we find work produced by faith if we look at the vine of Grace Covenant? Do we see Jesus and the way that the people here live out? And normal, every, and I don't mean just putting on your happy Jesus face to come to the worship service. I mean in normal everyday life in your vocations, wherever you go and whoever you rub shoulders with. Is Jesus being lived out in the ordinary life of the vine, the people of Grace Covenant? What evidence would Timothy find of faith here? How are you hearing the Bible? How are you obeying the Bible in ordinary, everyday life? Second, Paul talks about love. As in 1 Thessalonians, a healthy church has labor prompted by love. Remember that labor? It's a sweat word. If you remember the the passage, it's a toil word. It's harder than work. It requires more. It costs more. And it's actually more fun because of the sweat, the equity that you put into it. So if we took a good, hard, good, hard, honest look at our trellis structure 
and at our vine here, at our ministry activities and our people, would we see a church whose ethos is one another kind of love? Have we made a trellis that will support that, that allows us ways and gives us activities and means and structure that lets us love each other well? And are we actually doing that as people? Are we putting Jesus' love on display? When you come here, that we talked about it, did you come here praying about where you would sit? Because you're coming here to encourage someone else around you to love Jesus more, even just in the worship service, as you participate and talk and interact before and after. What evidence would we find of that kind of love in our church? Are you imitating practical love for each other in everyday life as Jesus has for you? Third, longing for one another. So one more good, hard, honest look at our trellis, our ministry structure, and our vine, the people at Grace Covenant. Do we see a church whose love looks outside us in mission? Do we have works produced by faith and labor prompted by love that then overflows out of our boundaries in a way that we both send people and we go ourselves to take the gospel to the lost? And I don't mean across the world. I mean across the street. Do we long for the missionaries that we support to prosper? Do we long to reach the lost who are around us? How are you following Jesus? How are you making disciples of the lost in everyday life? It's a church health assessment. The good news of the church at Thessalonica is that they have faith, and they have love, and they long for Paul and to reach the lost. And so hearing about this kind of church that is faith and love and longing for others, that's what the Apostle Paul gets fired up about because that's a healthy church. So he continues his sentence in verses 7 and 8. Picking up, he says, For this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and in our affliction, we've been comforted through you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. That is a strong statement. Don't miss that. That is a strong statement. You're in our affliction. What's comforting is your faith. And we now live because you stand. Remember our call to worship, Psalms 139. God always holds fast to his people. Remember John 15. No greater love has anyone for this than that Jesus has laid down his life for his church. And look at how Paul and his team are now imitating Jesus and God and their love for the brothers and sisters they have in Thessalonica as the church in Thessalonica itself is imitating that same love and their love for one another and reciprocal back to Paul. Right? In the statement, now we live, Paul isn't showing us that he has some problem with codependency and he needs to go to counseling. He's teaching us what the ethos of the church is supposed to look like. In doing this, he's putting together three things that he's been teaching us in his letters. Three things go together to make up now we live. And the first one is this that we've heard earlier in First Thessalonians. It's the with him principle. The with him principle. One of the main ways that this book teaches us to do discipleship is that it is by imitation. You became imitators of us and of Jesus, chapter 1, verse 6. And one of the key ingredients in discipleship then 
is the with him principle. It's that Jesus called men to be with him, that he would train them and send them out. So the church is to do discipleship just the same way. And that means that being a disciple and making a disciple actually requires real, genuine relationship with other believers. It's not something you can do by going to a class and by keeping everybody else at arm's length. It doesn't work. Real, genuine discipleship requires real, genuine relationship with him. Now we live. You're standing firm in faith. That's the first thing. The second thing, thread he's drawing together into this is the in Christ truth. We've learned about in 1 Thessalonians, it's actually going to loom really large just around the corner in next week's text. And we've heard it in other letters together like Ephesians. In Christ, that's shorthand. And it carries this huge amount of cargo that we can't unpack the entire train. But what in Christ basically means, it's a shorthand way of saying, here's what happens in the gospel. By the Holy Spirit's gracious work, I come to see I am utterly a sinner. There is no good in me. And I understand that this means that I deserve God's just judgment and his wrath forever in hell. And I see that God has given a free gift of grace to save me from his just wrath and my own horrific sin. And I understand that Jesus is that gift. And I believe that Jesus has lived the life I should have but did not. And Jesus has died the death that I should have. But he did instead. And Jesus has risen from the dead and triumphed over the grave, which I could not do. And he now sits at God's right hand and he intercedes for me when I won't obey. He still pleads his blood over me. All of that I believe by faith and I'm saved from my sin and death and its power and its penalty, sure and certain future of resurrection by faith in Christ alone, saved by grace alone. That's what in Christ means. And there's actually more cargo than that, but that's a good summary of what Paul means when he talks about being in Christ. And that's why he can write, now we live, because your faith is strong. And the third principle in play in the statement that he makes is also found in 1 Thessalonians. We'll call it the need you principle. So we're adding this to with him, in Christ, need you. As I am in Christ, I am joined to Christ's body his church, and the faith and the fate of other Christians is inextricably intertwined with mine. There's no way out of that. That's just the way God has made it to work. The faith and fate of other Christians is inextricably intertwined with mine. Like Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, we are all members of one body, each of us with a different role. So the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't like you. The foot can't say to the lungs, I don't need you. And the mouth can't say to the heart, if you're sick, I don't care. In Christ, I need you. And you need me. And Paul is teaching us that we need each other in Christ when he writes, Now we live because you are standing in faith. Do we understand how much we need each other? Are we living together knowing our faith and fate is inextricably intertwined? Do you get that? Will you disciple one another then knowing that as one of us takes a step toward Christ, we all grow and mature and benefit? 
And that as I turn away from sin and repent and come back to Jesus and walking with him, you all benefit, right? This is the way this works. We are inextricably intertwined. What would it look like? Here's what I'm praying in the Ukraine at the moment. What would it look like if the church in Russia, the people who are actually believers in Jesus Christ there, said, what's happening to the Ukrainian church is happening to us. And they found a way to send relief and help through the lines to the Ukrainian believers. What, a tes- what kind of testimony would that be to the world about what actually matters and who's in whose kingdom and what abounding love looks like? Right? Are you willing to do that kind of thing across the street? You don't have to cross the front lines with Russian tanks shooting at you. Will you cross the street to show what the abounding love of Christ looks like? I'm praying that the Russian church would get her act together and show the world what abounding love looks like by going to relieve the Ukrainian believers with whom they are inextricably linked and with whom their faith and fate is bound. And it is true of them that now we live because you're doing okay. We need to get around this in a world that is always us and them. We get the us and the them wrong. Discipleship here means we imitate Jesus Christ and his church And that being in Christ means we are inextricably bound to one another. And now verses 9 and 10 show us what that means. Here's what now we live means. And then we'll look at the Apostles' Prayer. First verses 9 and 10. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy we feel for your sake. Before our God as we pray most earnestly, night and day we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. He wants to be reunited with the church so they can keep doing gospel work and ministry and discipleship together. This is what in Christ is. In Christ becomes with him is and is needs you. This isn't arrogance on Paul's part as though, well, you're not going to get along very well if I don't get back there. That's not what he's saying. He understands that the healthy gospel ministry is, I want to help you be a disciple. I want to help you make disciples because we're inextricably linked. And because Christ's love has saved both of us. This is the way people who have come to know God's love in Christ actually respond. If you stand, we live. If you grow, we rejoice. And when we're together, it's for Christ and unto Christ and in Christ. And Paul knows what the most important thing going on in the world right now is. It's Jesus Christ is building his church. And Paul orbits his life around that. Because he understands what he taught us in chapter 2, that not all gospel ministry is vocational. In other words, gospel ministry isn't just the full-time people. All vocation, all callings in life are gospel ministry. All vocation is gospel ministry. So do you know what the most important thing in the world is right now? And what are you doing about it tomorrow. At this point, Paul transitions to pray for the church. This is how he closed the second of his three parts to the letter. Next week, he's going to start doing what he just wrote. I want to supply what's lacking in your faith. Chapters 4 and chapters 5, chapter 5, are the two chapters where he gives instruction to supply what's lacking in the faith of the church so that they can keep growing. So he's going to do what he just wrote, but first he's going to pray for him. Here he prays in verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself 
and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. You see, he makes two requests. If you're watching the syntax, there are two main verbs. He makes two requests. First, he says, I want to go back. May God direct his way back to us. He wants to return. He prays and asks for God's help to go back and do what he's just written them in the first three chapters. I want to do tender discipleship with you. And the key discipleship he understands is with him. With him. So the first thing he prays is, I want to be with you. I want to be able to disciple and grow together and mature together more in Christ. Right? I mean, this might be a prayer that you need to pray or would like to pray. Do you want someone to disciple you that you can grow and mature in Christ, but you have no one who's doing that? Maybe you should begin by praying, Lord, direct someone to me so that there can be with him discipleship going on because I want to grow. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're not training anyone. You're not equipping anyone. You're not helping anybody walk with Jesus. Maybe you need to begin by praying this prayer. Because if you're not, I think you should. Pray this prayer. Lord, please direct me to somebody whom I can help. There's always somebody younger than you are, whether in years or in maturity, whom you can can help to walk with Jesus. There's something God has given you. This is the way the body works. We need each other that you can use to help someone else grow. So maybe you need to pray, Lord, direct me to someone whom I can help grow. That's Paul's first request. We need to be with him because we are in Christ, and that means I need you. And then the second thing he prays is the abounding word, which is going to come up again next week. Paul asks Jesus would make, the ch- Paul asks Jesus would make his church increase and abound in love. Notice, for one another and for everybody. So for everyone inside the church and everyone outside the church. One more thing to imitate, right? Paul isn't praying for them to abound in love so they can become a little insular, inward-focused, little holy huddle community focused just on each other, right? He's not praying for them to abound in love so that they're a fun place to go and hang out, though they are. He's not praying for them to form a country club that's exclusive and focused just on one another. He's praying that in the power of the Holy Spirit and in spite of strong opposition and persecution, that the, that the gospel of God would go from them to people who are lost in darkness, that the message they've received in joy would overflow so that people could see the gospel in the way they treat each other. We pray, he prays that the, the people who are brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and infants, remember all that family language that he uses at the beginning of the book, that are in the same body, that their love would abound and overflow so that... Their faith would mature, and their love would overflow through the ordinary means of grace of the preached word of God and prayer and the sacraments. That was a mouthful. I got it all out in one breath. He prays that their love would abound for the maturing of their faith because they are inextricably linked to each other. Now we live that you're doing well. With him in Christ need you. That's Paul's passion for the Thessalonian church. That's what he's praying for them. To be disciples, to make disciples. That's how he gets to the last line of the prayer. Look at the last line again. So that Jesus, is who he's talking about, so Jesus may establish your hearts 
blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the most important thing going on in the world right now. Christ is building his church. And it makes me want to ask the question, how do these go together, the things he's praying? We have to be together with him. We've seen how that kind of works. But how does this abounding in love and established in holiness and blameless when Jesus comes back, how do these things go together? I think this is where the rubber hits the road for us again in the Apostles' Prayer. Ask yourself, who needs your good works that you do in love? Who needs your good works? Does God need your good works? Are you doing them for God? So he'll love you more than he does now. Are you doing them for God so you can earn extra points for him or think that he has, you have favor with him, maybe even more than the guy over here? Are you doing them maybe even to earn your way to heaven? If I just do enough good works, God will let me in. It doesn't work like that. Psalms 139, we read it in our call to worship, says that those who belong to God, those who are in Christ, those who are his, they are his completely and fully and always. And there's nowhere you can go that he doesn't hold you fast. He doesn't need your good works to do that. Jesus Christ has already done all of the good work necessary for you to be God's child. Jesus has already died on the cross and paid the debt of your sin. Jesus has already died on the cross. He's satisfied the full wrath of God against all the ugliness of you and what you have in your heart and your sin. Jesus has come back from the dead and resurrection. He brings eternal life if you will but believe in him and forgiveness and reconciliation. And now, now, now he's sitting at God's right hand. And when you sin, he pleads his blood over you even now. Your right standing with God has nothing to do with your good works. God doesn't need them. Jesus' good works are completely sufficient. So who needs your good works? Look around the room. I mean that literally. Look around the room. Turn around. Who needs your good works? These people do. This is how abound in love goes with may you be found holy and blameless when Jesus comes back. Your good works aren't for God, they're for your neighbor and on God's behalf. Your good works aren't for God, they're for your neighbor on God's behalf. You have the privilege of participating in God maturing other people in Christ. That's your response to his love to you. That's how abound in love, so you now you're doing good works for your neighbor, results in the church being righteous and holy when Jesus comes to get her. Because your good works are for your neighbor on God's behalf. Because Jesus has done all of the work necessary to make you belong to God. Isn't that cool? I really like that. This guy, Paul, he seems to know what he's talking about. The most important thing going on in the world right now, it's Jesus Christ building his church and it's done as we abound in love for one another. So how about you? All the people you just made eye contact with or tried not to make eye contact with when you were looking around. 
Will you abound in love so that the people sitting around you can believe in Jesus and mature in Jesus and be ready for Jesus to come get them? Will you use the ordinary means of grace and the preached word of God and prayer and the sacraments to love others and to serve others? Because with him and in Christ also have with them need you. Greater love has no man than this, that he's laid down his life for his friends. That's imitating Jesus. That's discipleship in 1 Thessalonians. So here's your commission this week, brothers and sisters. Your commission is to abound in love for one another by showing, by practical love, labor of love for one believer at Grace Covenant and one unbeliever whom you know in everyday life. Abound in love by doing some practical love, showing what Christ's love looks like for one believer at Grace Covenant and one unbeliever whom you know in ordinary life. That's how Jesus builds his church. We get to imitate him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful again that we are in Christ. Thank you for all the songs that we've sung this morning that remind us how we have rest in you, how you, uh, your love will never let us go. I pray now as we turn to sing one more song about you and your grace and your power that you would use the words of this text and the words that we've prayed and the confession that we've had and the word of God that is now heard and called to, we've been called to obey, that you would use these things to help us to abound in love that your church may be built up and ready for you to come get us. I pray that the most important thing going on in the world would be the most important thing going on with us. In Christ's name, amen.